0: One of the things I've observed is that it seems like we've been dealt a one-two punch through all of this that has rocked the ways that we have tended to avoid the subject of death. What I mean by that is, on the one hand, you've got every day, every newspaper is posting death counts that are rising steadily. So you've got death in the public eye in a way that it often isn't the same time that that's happening we've also been deprived of some of the things we most typically use to distract ourselves from the fact that we've always been dying we've just typically had a lot of toys to to play with to keep ourselves from having to think about it and some of those have been taken
1: away welcome to the crossway podcast a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the bible theology church history and the christian life I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Matt McCullough. Matt serves as pastor of Trinity Church in Nashville, Tennessee, which he helped to plant in 2010. He's written articles for Nine Marks and the Gospel Coalition, and is the author of Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope from Crossway. Today, Matt and I discuss how thinking and being really honest about the reality of death can paradoxically free us to find hope and joy in God like never before. He reflects on our culture's strategies to avoid death at all costs, highlights how COVID-19 has brought our mortality to the forefront of our collective consciousness in a unique way right now, and discusses why the practice of intentionally remembering death finds support in both scripture and church history. Let's get started. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today.
0: Uh, It's my pleasure, Matt. appreciate you inviting me.
1: So I think this COVID-19 pandemic that we're still, we're still enmeshed in, and it's probably going to be a long time before we you know, actually feel like we're through it and things are back to normal for all of us, it, it has felt like a whirlwind. And I think probably for certain people more than others, but all of us have experienced that. And I know for me, one of the things that stood out the most is that never in my life up to this point have I seen daily death counts like we're seeing now. You know, every day we read uh, about the U.S., how many people have died, and then even around the rest of the world. And so I wonder, as you've observed that dynamic and just the the pandemic as a whole and the impact it's had on our society and the world uh, more generally, have you observed anything about just the way that we are talking and thinking about death um, through this pandemic?
0: One of the things I've observed is that it seems like we've been dealt a one-two punch through all of this that has rocked the ways that we have tended to avoid the subject of death. What I mean by that is, on the one hand, you've got what you mentioned already. Every day, every newspaper is posting death counts that are rising steadily. And at at rates now that are just almost so high that they're abstract and tough to get your mind around, it's staggering. Yeah. Um, So you've got death in the public eye in a way that it often isn't. Um, So that's, that's punch number one. But then punch number two is that at the same time that that's happening, we've also been deprived of some of the things we most typically use to distract ourselves from the fact that we've always been dying. Like that part's not new. (laughs) The the death rate is still going to be a hundred percent, you know, whether it's COVID-19 or something else, it's still going to happen. We've just typically had a lot of toys to, to play with to keep ourselves from having to think about it, and some of those have been taken away. So for me, it's it's often sports that I escape through, or right? I just just to, I think it's fine. You know, it's there's there's a lot of good in that, I'm, I, I stand by it. And I'll once once they're playing sports again, I'll be watching. But my goodness, there's nothing to watch. I mean, we yeah, I open my ESPN app every now and then, and they're they're apparently airing people playing xbox against one another and 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 that's their lead stories you know so at the very time when we most need distraction uh, some of our favorite distractions have been taken away we can't go out to a bar anymore you know you you can't go even go out and eat an, a nice dinner on a date with your wife you're stuck at home and netflix is still there maybe but but a lot of the things that we would use to distract ourselves aren't so um that that one-two punch i think is is one of the things that interests me the most and i think it'll be interesting to continue to watch what that does to the public consciousness, on um, around death.
1: Right. Well, and I'm struck too, as you said, all of us are going to die someday. So there's, there's that element that like we we were never escaping death truly, but it, it seems like, and even though the numbers from, of deaths from COVID-19, while, you know, high and scary and, and devastating, you know, they they still pale in comparison to all these other causes of death that are happening all the time all around us. And yet it seems like it's easier for us to ignore those other things, other causes of death, the prevalence of death um, that was around us that always will be around us, even though, you know, now it feels like it's a little bit more prominent uh, because of this pandemic in particular. So you you mentioned distraction as kind of something that maybe we use generally speaking. Can you elaborate on that? Like what What's behind that? What does that look like for a lot of people?
0: What's behind the, uh, the urge to distract ourselves from mortality? Yeah. I, I, it's definitely nothing new. Uh, uh, Pascal's uh, famous book, this collection of thoughts that he had on life and, um, and, and the meaning of it all, uh, talks often of death. And one of the most in- interesting insights to me in that book is how is it, even then, hundreds of years ago, he's talking about our tendency to entertain ourselves as a way of numbing the pain. Like when, when you're just alone with yourself and you have to actually think on the fact that everything important to you is passing away with time and you yourself won't live forever, uh, well, that's not a pleasant. That hurts. And so, I mean, even back then, you, you, everyone w- had a vested interest in trying to numb the pain or just take their mind off of it altogether. He he talked about that often. And he could not even imagine all the the the, the ways that we have at our disposal to, to distract ourselves from from you know Netflix season after Netflix season, where you don't even have to click next episode; they'll do that for you. You know, just sit back and put your feet up and let it wash over you. Uh, the 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 um the ways that we can escape are just unprecedented um, compared to earlier times. Though the urge to escape has always been there, and I think it makes sense because death is justifiably a horrible thing to think about. Um, it, it it is a terrible reality. And if you're facing it without hope, then I think probably better to, to distract yourself than to than to deal with that.
1: Um, yeah, not think about it till you absolutely yeah, have to and
0: delay it till it's absolutely at the very last minute possible. Now I think that's foolish. You know, the Bible has given us categories for that kind of thinking. There's wisdom and foolishness, and wisdom is living in light of the world and and, and by the way the world really is. Foolishness being living in some sort of denial of the way that the world really is, and so distracting ourselves from death is something the Bible would call foolishness. But I think it's a foolishness that makes sense when the reality, then facing up to the reality, leaves you alone in a world that is indifferent to you.
1: Hmm. So, do you think, um, like, fear of death is? I guess how how big of a motivator is the fear of death in just the the saturation that we have in our culture in particular in this time uh, in in the US, say behind just the 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 culture of distraction that we live in it does seem like there is just huge industries devoted to just pumping out as much content and entertainment as they can spectacle um, and I, I guess i wonder like how much of a factor is the fear of death as a motivator behind yeah. all of that?
0: Well, Pascal would say it's a huge one. I mean, it's it's tough to quantify, right? There's not going to be any kind of study that can separate out the different factors and, and, and put them in a pecking order, but I think it's a huge factor behind it. Um, I, think, I think one of the reasons is that so many people in a more secular society like the one I live in um, are, are facing the reality without hope. They have isolated themselves from outside powers, from a supernatural realm that inter- interacts with them in this world, and that means they're trapped here with whatever is true here, and under the sun, is the way Ecclesiastes would put it. And um, if you're alone with death under the sun, um, how much more reason to to try to numb that pain and, and, and avoid that reality? So, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how much, but I I think it's a lot of it. It's a lot of what drives
1: it. So I've I've often wondered why then, um, if that is true, that so much of our entertainment culture is is ultimately motivated by not wanting to think about death, why is so much of it focused on death? I mean, there's movies and books, um, video games. You know, that the so many of them are centered on death in different yeah. forms. <laughs> yeah. Did, right. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what might be behind that?
0: Yeah, definitely. Though I mean, I that I had. I can't take credit for having thought about it. It was something that was put on my radar by a really helpful sociologist writing decades ago, who before he even had he had no category for a zombie movie, he was already all over this reality that we're now living with, what you've just described, that death is everywhere in the popular culture. But that because we've suppressed talk that's honest and straightforward and life-like, real, real life-like about the reality of death, um, it, it, we, we can't get rid of the urge to, to, to confront it. That's deep in us. There's a, there's a gnawing sense that it matters. But what happens when you put a lid over honest, straightforward conversation is that like, perverted forms of this reality just bubble up um, and, and, and squeeze their way to the surface. Uh, this sociologist compared the way that we will talk about death in our culture to the way that sex was viewed in earlier cultures where there was kind of a taboo over polite, honest conversation about it where it was hidden from public view. And then you get the birth of pornography as, a, as, as distorted, perverted forms of it bubbling up because sex is just something that matters to us. And it, whether you talk about it straightforwardly or not, it's going to be a, a thing. He, he noticed that the same reality was was happening around death in the 20th century, that straightforward, honest conversation had been banished. It was impolite. It was morbid. It was the distraction from the happiness we're all looking for. Uh, but you can't keep it down, is what he said. So he, the title of his essay was "The Pornography of Death." That that he predicted death would find its way into popular culture in some vastly perverted forms, and I think that's what we see. And what I mean by that? Let me, let me let me take another pass at this. What I mean by this perverted form of death in popular culture is that the deaths we see are deaths that are just not normal, that are detached from from my experience of life, and, and that are very not, uh, unlikely that I will ever experience them. I mean, the chances that I will die in a zombie apocalypse are very, very, very low. Um, and thankfully. Uh, also, very unlikely I'm going to be killed by a serial killer, you know, or get up involved in some sort of mob hit takedown. So so the kinds of deaths that are on TV every night or in, on Netflix, um, these are the kinds of deaths that... that quote unquote normal people are unlikely to die. So in seeing death in those forms, what we're actually doing is not confronting death, but reassuring ourselves that we're not ever going to die. Mm. Because if that's what death is, I mean I'm like that, that's not going to happen to me.
1: It distances it death distances from us, us further. Us from death.
0: Yeah. It mm. distances us from death rather than than helping us to actually confront it.
1: Yeah. So near the beginning of your book you you ask readers a pretty intense question. Uh, and I wonder if I can turn that question around on you, and right <laughs> now, and have you answer that. So the question is: When was the last time that you thought of the fact that you will die? So I wonder how would you answer that question right now?
0: Wow, I mean, it's not—it's not quite fair to probably to turn it around on me because I am probably one of the more morbid people that you've spoken to. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do think about it often. I don't—I don't think about it. Wondering when am I going to die or how am I going to die? I'm not fixated on it in that sense But I think every day It occurs to me across as my mind or something I reflect on the, the, the brevity of life and the fact that mine's not going to last um, I think it's an everyday thing for me yeah. And it, it, you know, it'll come out in different ways um, it, it, It's not a, I have not, at least not right now, have have some sort of practice where I you know, at this time every day get some sort of alert that reminds me to think about it. It's not like that. You could do that. Um, It's more that different. I've just, I think, trained my eyes to recognize it when it comes up. So, so for this morning, for example, before I, uh, before I started work, I just watched my children playing with their backs to me, Legos uh, on the floor in, in their, in their room. They had no idea I was watching them. And I'm just, I'm just watching them play with each other in this world they've built for themselves, having a blast completely immersed in it. And I, I'm thinking about how small they used to be and how big they look to me now and how quick that happened and how, you know, in a flash, they're not even going to be at my home anymore. And I'm thinking about all of that in the space of five seconds. You know, it just hits like a wave. And for me, I've learned to recognize and label that as an experience of the grip of death on the beauty and wonderful uh, life, the beauty of this wonderful life God has given to me now, that the things that are beautiful and precious in it are temporary. I don't get to hold on to these gifts forever. And that hurts me. Um, and, uh, and and so it's, it's things like that. It's just uh, it's run-of-the-mill everyday experiences that will, will trigger that awareness in me mm. again.
1: Yeah, I'm struck that sometimes um, just the reality of passing time I think that's kind of what you're getting at, too, with even your kids. With death as the ultimate destination, um, even just the passing of time can be so bittersweet for us. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. C.S. Lewis talked about described time as another word for death. And I think think he's right. I mean, time, thanks be to God, brings some good things that we didn't have before. And now time moves in one direction, and it moves us into a season of blessing we didn't have before. That's wonderful. It's not all bad, but... But man, when you've got something good that God has given you, and you can tell it's not lasting forever, and you know that time only moves in one direction, that's just a a dark and heavy cloud to live under, especially if you have to live there alone. Um, which is which is why you know uh, I thought I, I'd get a lot of ribbing about the book, as you can imagine, a book called Remember Death. You know, <laughs> uh, and I'm happy to put up with that. I'm happy to take that on. When you cross a taboo, you should expect it. Uh, but but the way I turn that about on people is say, actually, no, 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 it's not really a book about death. It's a book about Jesus, that uh, you can't understand Jesus if you don't understand the context into which he came and from which he came to deliver us. And so the grief that the passing of time brings to my life ultimately channels me into a deeper longing for everything Jesus said he came to give me. So it's a, it's a way of opening my eyes day in, day out to what a wonderful, relevant, promise i've been given in the gospel
1: well unpack that a little bit more because i wonder if you could you know speak to the person who's listening right now to us who is maybe feeling a little bit of that discomfort and it's like this is this is unpleasant why are we so focused on death well, how could it be a good thing to be um thinking about it that often so i, I wonder could you like Boil down your case to somebody listening right now making the case for why they should keep listening why they should why they should endure through what might feel pretty yeah. uncomfortable
0: yeah I mean the first thing I'd say is yeah it is uncomfortable i I don't want to take the edge off of that I, you're right and if we if we could avoid it, it makes sense that we'd want to and if it weren't a reality that affects every single one of us, I would say probably just try to dodge it do your best to dodge it and then and then don't don't let it trouble you but, but because it is a reality that affects all of us, whether we want to think about it or not, then the two main reasons that I think it's important to go here, through the discomfort, are, are wisdom and hope. So, again, the Bible talks about wisdom as an instinct or skill for living well in the world as it is. That means facing up to what's true. That means resisting the temptation to deny what's true, um, to, to, to live in a kind of falsehood or denial. Um the, re- the reality is there's nothing we can do to, to avoid death, so we may as well be ready for it, think about it, recognize it, grapple with it. Otherwise, it's, you're going to be affected by it and not necessarily know what it is that you're being affected by. If, if you've banished death from your mind and conversation, um, then when you experience it, as you will, not just the, not just the final death, but, but the many um, little deaths along the way and the loss of good things that time take away from us. Um, you won't be able to properly diagnose what you're dealing with. If you can't diagnose it correctly, you can't ever cure it. So you'll keep trying to slap band-aids on gaping wounds, or you know, uh, uh, just try to numb the pain when what you need is antibiotics. It, it's so, so uh, wisdom is about diagnosis, about recognizing what it is I'm dealing with. I want to put the right label on it. And yeah, that hurts, but it's the, it's the only path to healing, and that leads to hope. So. Wisdom and hope. The other reason is hope. Um, you know, as a, as a pastor, my main job is to try to help my friends that I pastor understand why Jesus is such wonderfully good news. What is it about him that meets us where we are and offers us more? And um, Jesus' language, what he says about himself, and Jesus' works, what he did, are, um, are not sensible. They don't make any sense apart from the reality of death that he came to confront. So if we want to know why Jesus is such good news, we need to know why death is such bad news. And if you face up to it, then actually it gives you a stronger grip on the hope that Christ offers. Um, when, when you think that your biggest problem, uh, the, when the, when the, or rather when the problem that weighs heaviest on you is a more short-term horizon kind of problem. Like, am I going to finish my training and get the and, and get the credential that I need to? That's a lot of folks in my church. Will I, on the backside of that training, have a job that allows me to use what I've trained? And and will I then get tenure with the the job that I've that I've gotten? Will I find a spouse? Will I have children? Will I be financially secure? A lot of the folks I'm pastoring are younger, twenties and thirties. They're on the way up this ladder, and when you think of your biggest problem as that rung that's just out of reach that you haven't grabbed and stepped onto yet, um, then, then when Jesus starts talking about eternal life, like he's talking to somebody else. He's not talking to you because that has, seems to have nothing to do with that rung that is your like, sole focus and attention. Um, but if you realize that even if you, even if you get to the top of that ladder, that what's, what's at the top of it at the end of your life is, is an ending that will take away everything that you build for yourself. If, if you see that about yourself, then, then now Jesus' words all of a sudden have a relevance you didn't recognize before, a relevance to today, a relevance even to whether or not you get to that rung you'd like to get, <laughs> to whether or not you finish your training, and how you cope with it if you don't, and whether or not you get that spouse you hope for, and how you cope with it if you don't. Jesus becomes good news when you see him in light of what he came to do, um, rather than judging him solely based on the sort of short-term tomorrows you're you're otherwise living for.
1: So it seems like people can often and maybe all of us struggle with this at different times and in different ways at the same time. Uh, But on the one hand, I resonate with what you've said about watching your kids and having this acute pang of um, the passing of time and just the loss that comes with that. Even as kids, you know, to take that example, grow and develop, you want to see them grow, you want to see them develop. But there are things that are lost in that process because of time. Um, so that's on the one hand, but then on the other hand, and that can lead us to hold on to things maybe and, and to, to not want to let go. Uh, and on the other hand, I wonder if sometimes people find themselves in seasons when they just are sort of floating through life and they don't really have a sense of what's changing and what's passing. You're, you're kind of so oblivious or you're so focused on something that you you miss the fact that you know you're losing things or things are changing more quickly than you might realize or want. So I guess, how do you, um, does that second category of maybe being oblivious to the passing of time, not realizing what, what you are, what's changing, what you're losing, because you're so focused on maybe the future or um, your goals, how does that fit into this conversation?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, if, if, if what's keeping us from grieving the passing of time is that we're very future-oriented, goal-driven, then I think there's another way in which death puts us in our place and helps us to connect with Jesus. This is, the, um, this is the help that Ecclesiastes gives us. So uh, you know, Ecclesiastes is written from the pr- perspective of this wise, wealthy, successful person who had it all and then realized that what he had was just wind, striving at wind, vanity, empty, meaningless. So for the person who's chasing tomorrow, I mean, let's say they get everything they hope for and all their wildest dreams, they probably won't match what that guy had. He had everything. And his wisdom perspective tells that person before they've gotten there that when they get there, it won't be what they think it is. At the end of that ladder is death. That's what he says. So so hanging over the the futility and frustration of Ecclesiastes is the the problem of death. He comes back to it over and over and over. I mean, I, I built all these wonderful things, all this wealth, but what, what's going to come of it? I'm leave it to the guy who comes after me, and I'll be forgotten. That's what he says. And he's right. <laughs> so... Uh, so let's say in you know, your wildest dreams, all your wildest dreams come true, and uh, you meet every single goal you've set for yourself. Uh, one day, all of that will be taken from you. Um, as, as another writer, I really appreciate you put it. It's like what you're building is, is basically a sandcastle and a rising tide. I mean, one of these days, it's going to be swept away. So you could either try to defeat death through your work, And bring into your work frustration, fear, anxiety, um, and then eventually, best case scenario, the realization that once you've arrived, it's not what you thought it would be. Or you can take Jesus into your work with you. You can rest in the work he's already done once and for all to defeat death. You can stop trying to defeat death in your work, trying to make a mark, trying to accomplish something that that will survive and maybe even outlive you. And just let your work be what it was always meant to be. which is a chance to glorify the God who made you, um, to, to do work in His name that honors Him and loves your neighbor. Um, so that, that's the way I'd come at somebody who's living for the future. Like if they're not paying attention to the passing of time, help them to see that tomorrow, which they have likely, they have likely filled in their minds and their hearts with all of their highest hopes, is actually not the friend that they think it is. Tomorrow is not when you arrive. Tomorrow is when you die. That's what lies at the end of this road, unless Jesus. And if Jesus is at the end of this road, then he can be on the road with you too. I mean, the the relevance of what he's already done can shape what you do now in a way that you you may not have really tasted yet.
1: Mm. So I I love um, Christian history. I love reading biographies. Um, And one of the things that anyone who appreciates Christian history and, and maybe just general history uh, and, and has read a little bit about it, that's most obvious is that, man, these people had a much closer, more real, tangible sense of the reality of death than we do today. It just, it seems so much more real uh, as part of their experience. So I wonder, what do you think are some of the factors behind that? We've, we've talked about our culture of entertainment today, uh, maybe facilitated by, you know, communication technologies and video and all that. But are there any other things that you you see in our culture that maybe make it easier for us to um, really make good on that impulse, that natural impulse to try to ignore death or, or downplay death?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the desire to downplay it and ignore it has always been there. But we've had more space in which to do that than any other culture at uh, any time and place in history. Partly because of the wonderful success of modern medicine, I mean, I am a big fan of modern medicine. I love that I have been immunized and my kids have, and so we don't have to worry about uh, you know smallpox uh, sweeping through and and killing all of us. That was a very real fear and, and possibility three hundred years ago in this country um so so one of the big one of the big factors has been modern medicine so and, and there are at least a couple things going on there. One is things that used to kill people early in life and keep death at the center of life in the home um... have been pushed back so through trauma care uh, emergency medicine immunizations um, uh... and and just the remarkable success of pharmaceutical industry it's it's wonderful that a lot of things that would have been um, would have been lethal quickly uh, are not anymore that's one thing the other thing is that probably because of the success of modern medicine, the things that now we tend to die from, um, we tend to die from them only after long, drawn-out battles with uh, using, using medical technology and all the drugs at our disposal to fight back, push back on death to the last possible minute. And what that means is that we're more likely than not to die in a hospital outside of normal life, in a weird place that's sanitized and in professional, professional institution that people rarely visit, unless they absolutely have to, where several hundred years ago, death was much more likely to happen in your home, you know, in the place where you sleep and eat and have fun, and, um, and, and, and more likely to happen not just to your grandparents, but even to your parents or to your spouse or to your children, or your, your brother or your sister. Um, so it was just a lot more ever-present and, and right in front of everyone back then than it is now. And the space that modern medicine has given us, we have taken. <laughs> and filled with, with lots of other things that help us avoid the truth.
1: So you mentioned that it was almost viewed as part of, you know, piety, uh, Christian piety is kind of keeping this reality in front of our minds. And at one point in the book, you actually talk about remembering death as a sort of spiritual discipline. And I wonder, like, what do you mean by that? And what does that actually look like in your own life? You know, you mentioned just sort of the, um, the natural occurrences of, um, remembering death through the day-to-day yeah. Uh, yeah. experiences that you have. But are there, have there ever been any kind of practical disciplines or routines or habits that you've tried to initiate to, to help you to, to do that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, here and there, and though, though for me, mostly, I, I do think of this as a discipline of mind, a discipline of perspective. It's so a little bit different than my daily uh, you know, reading of Scripture and prayer a discipline to focus on something when it comes up and not hide from it. so um so you know when I the the image I gave you a little bit earlier just from this morning of seeing my children play and how sweet and precious it was and knowing it wasn't going to last like the the discipline I'm talking about is is accepting that, feeling that, labeling that for what it is and then going to Christ with that in that moment like medicating in the moment on him, oh thank you for a A promise of a kingdom full of joy that won't end, like these joys here always do. Um, Though there are definitely practices out there that that you can you can use that are are more tangible than that that Christians have used uh, over the years. So you know we talked about the medieval period. Um, These artworks were were a practice; they put something to paper uh, to help them remember, and they would have been hung on a wall and passed by. On my wall near my desk, I have a. I have some art like this that's a practical thing I'm sitting here staring at my computer working on an email working on a sermon that I'm tempted to invest all of my significance into I look up and I see um, a skull with wings on it from a Puritan headstone and the the words memento mori a picture of an hourglass and the uh, the words that mean the hour comes now, this is like a, a, a picture of a, of a Puritan headstone but that's an everyday. It's right there. I can look up at it and and, and be reminded. So that's there. I mean, in, in the some folks in the medieval period would even put like a skull on their desk, you know. Where you, and I haven't gone that far, but I don't. And, and maybe that's a little over the top. I don't know. It's to his own. But but I know where they're coming from with that. I think there there probably are practices like that that could help. Though though I don't have a master list. One thing that I've. I, I have not been able to experience this in my current pastoral context yet because of the average age at our church. But 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 that was a bigger part of my life growing up in a rural Alabama church with a lot of age diversity and a lot of funerals. Um, if your congregation has has people on a, on a wide age range and, and some who are dying, I think visiting the dying, seeing them, and then, and, and seeing yourself in them, seeing that what they go through is something you will go through—it's not just their experience; it's, it's a, a picture of yours as well. Helps you to empathize with them, and minister to them, but also to learn from from them. Um, and uh, and I think that just building opportunities to encounter people at that stage in your life can be a really healthy practice too.
1: So it makes me, you know, think about as a the church experiences death kind of together in, in the members of the congregation. Um, parents often, I think, wrestle with thinking about um, how do I talk to my kids about death, especially young children, um, even more so if it's a family member or a closer friend who passes away. So what, what advice would you offer to parents when it comes to thinking about young kids? Uh, how, how do you talk about death yeah. with them?
0: Well, that's such a difficult question to answer because I think, the right answer will vary child to child as most everything does. you're, you're going to know your kid best. God has given you to them as the parent um, and so you're going to know better than I do what, what to do. So my advice would be much uh, would be a couple steps above that. Beginning with this, I would say do not hide it from them. Um, it, we, we cannot shelter them from the truth about life under the sun. We're not doing them a favor to shelter them from it. Of course we have to be careful with it. Of course, you don't want to do anything that, makes, that, that gives them unnecessary fear. You don't want to sensationalize it. You don't want to like, throw it, rub it in their faces. When I say don't hide it from them, I, I, what I mean is when they ask you about it, as they will because they're paying attention, don't dodge the question. Um, don't, euphem- don't, don't come up with euphemisms that will, that will sort of cloud over what it is. Um, don't deny the fact that it is an end to something beautiful. That God made that's wonderful that was precious um, don't deny that um, don't focus solely on the like the new and better life that whoever has died is now living I think that that can be true and there's some comfort in it but that we need to, our children to also know that there's a sadness and a brokenness in what we're experiencing here um, because it will be some of the most precious opportunities you have to talk to your kids about Jesus when you talk to them about death never do that without also talking to them about this is why jesus came he says he's the resurrection and the life that if any of us believe in him we won't die but we'll live like he does um it it gives you something it gives you more context for talking about the joy of easter when you've when you've helped them see death first
1: i think that you hit on something that i know i've wrestled with at times and i think um others often wrestle with especially when when we ourselves are feeling um grief over someone passing away is just we can almost feel a little bit torn on the one hand um, we know that we're sad we know that we feel pain we know that we feel loss and sometimes that can be so overwhelming and yet on the other hand we might feel this pressure that like but i know that i have hope and i know that that person had hope and i know that they are in a better place with jesus and their pain is gone and we can feel like well because of that i should be happy for them so I, how do you how do you bring those two things together? How should we think about those two yeah, realities?
0: I think that Jesus gives us permission to experience both through the model He gives us at the tomb of Lazarus. So here, here, here's the situation that He orchestrated. Lazarus is dying. He knows ahead of time. He has the power to heal him. He chooses to wait longer before he goes, just so that Lazarus will die, and says it's so that they might believe in Him. The reason that He's waiting, the reason He's that he's making sure Lazarus dies first is so that they can believe in him. So he's in complete control. He knows what he's doing. He's got a he's got a new heavens and new earth oriented end game here. Uh, but when he gets there, and he actually sees where his friend is buried, and he sees the pain of his other friends who are grieving the loss of this man, he grieves with them. He's moved by it, knowing that minutes later he's gonna he's gonna raise this man to new life. Um. That's a little bit mind-boggling, but it's a model, nevertheless. And I think understand how all of the divinity and humanity of Jesus interacts in that moment, to be guided by it, to grieve as he did, to cry like he cried, to be angry even at the reality of death and the grip that it holds over us. Uh, but then to look through him, the resurrection and the life, to what he said he will do. So... Um, my, my pushback to, to what may be our more normal Christian funeral culture right now is that celebrations of life are not enough. It's fine to celebrate the life. God's grace, if we're talking about a Christian who has died, we should celebrate the gift of that person to us, the gifts God gave to them, what God did in their life, and we should celebrate the fact that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We should celebrate all of that. But If that's all we do, we're guilty of what theologians call an over-realized eschatology, where we're living as if we have already experienced more of the victory Jesus has won than we actually have. That we're still actually in the not yet. And in the not yet, we grieve. We see and experience the pain of death. We shouldn't try to pull that sting ourselves by turning our attention only to celebrating life. We should acknowledge the sting is still here. We still feel it. Only Christ can pull it. He'll do that in his time. Um, and in the not yet, we grieve and hope.
1: Yeah. Maybe along those lines then, I wonder if you could speak uh, just to our current situation right now with, with coronavirus going around and with the reality of, of hearing these death numbers every day and just kind of being confronted in a very visceral way each day, uh, with the the crisis that we're in right now, what encouragement would you give to anxious Christians who just, you know, they believe the gospel, they, they have the hope of eternal life with Christ, uh, but they are still struggling. They're struggling with fear that they could get sick, that their loved ones could get sick. And um, so what would you say to that person today?
0: Uh, you know... I'd say i wish i was sitting in front of you and could ask you more questions so that i could figure out exactly where your fears is coming from because the answers i give would vary a lot person to person but at the risk of saying things that aren't going to be helpful to everybody who's listening i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a couple talking points that i'd want to try to push one is um I, I would try to encourage people to see that the where that the the, the death as they're confronting it in this coronavirus time um, death has a, as a bigger reality that this is just one manifestation of. really isn't new. So in, in, at one level, nothing has changed except another cause of death we weren't thinking about before is, is in front of us, and it affects us, and it affects people that are precious to us. But, but the reality of death behind it, well, that's always been there. And the parents that we're worried about, the children that we're, we're worried about, they, they, are, they are going to die of something. And and so um, I, I want to put coronavirus in its place. Honestly, I think it is serving us by bringing death into the public conversation in a way that it hasn't been for a long time. That's a good thing. But if we just treat coronavirus like you know, a death from a mob hit or death from a zombie apocalypse as just one more thing that we might can avoid and hope to avoid, and that's what death is, then then we're not we're not learning from the moment like we need to. Um, we need to we need to see death capital D, behind it all, and realize that was always a problem for us. And and then think about the fact that Jesus has always been there to solve it. So he's not any less capable of of bringing beauty from the ashes of this epidemic, this pandemic, than he, than he was able to redeem the life of, of those lost to any other cause of death. He's still there. He's still risen. He still reigns. And he still offers resurrection and life to anyone who trusts in him. So, I would I would encourage people not to try to um, not to overreact to this particular cause of of death. To grieve it as it affects you, if, if, if you get this sickness, if someone you love gets it and, and dies, that is worthy of, of grief. Jesus grieves that. Um, but then to run to Christ in it, He's still there. He's still ruling. Nothing has changed. This is not this is not changing what's true about the world or about Him and what He can offer. Uh, I, I'd want to try to work those things in, but again, I—you got to get in front of the person and hear where they're actually coming from to know how to apply that comfort in a way that won't be cold comfort, but genuine comfort. Yeah,
1: spoken like a true pastor.
0: Yeah, I mean the comfort's in there. It's the delivery is is what varies person to person.
1: <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today to, yeah, to I think offer all of us a a sobering and yet ultimately encouraging, ultimately life giving and hope giving reminder to remember death, but then remember Jesus all the more. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time.
0: It's my pleasure, brother. Thank you for asking me.
1: That was Matt McCullough on finding true hope and joy by facing up to the reality of death. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.